Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we've just finished a sermon series in the book of Esther, and uh, we're, we're going to... Uh, the, the current plan is to actually is to do an Easter sermon series. You know, we often do Christmas sermon Advent series. Why don't we ever do Easter sermon series? So uh, that's the current plan uh, starting next week, subject to change. But uh, the, the plan for today is in line with uh, what we've heard uh, from in our ministry team presentation. We are going to consider uh, the uh, one, the, 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 1 Corinthians 12, uh, one body, many gifts. Uh, so please turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's prepare ourselves for the reading of God's word. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray To mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To to another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but in all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink, Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. 
But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? The implied answer is no. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. In the, probably what was uh, happening in the church at Corinth, the Corinthian church, is that there were those who were emphasizing one spiritual gift over and above all the others, probably the gift of speaking in tongues, and uh, emphasizing it to the degree that they were sort of uh, uh, you know, in suggesting that every Christian should have that gift because that gift made someone a true spiritual Christian and that those who had it were in fact a part of sort of a spiritual elite group of Christians while those who lacked it were second class not needed and didn't fully belong. And so the emphasis of one particular gift was uh, causing division and, uh, in the church rather than unity. And Paul then in the letter and here in our passage counters against that attitude by correcting their wrong-headed ideas of what it means to be spiritual and by pointing to the intentional and beautiful design of God in how he put his church together, that he did not give the same gift to everyone, that he did not give all the gifts to anyone, but rather he gave different gifts to everyone, which creates the result that God's people are bound together in mutual need where each one has something to give and each one has something to receive. Unity through diversity. And uh, whether the, I, I don't know that the, the exact situation is uh, present, as was in Corinth, is present here in our local church context. Uh, uh, I don't think so. Uh, but nevertheless, there are is lots of relevance uh, to any church nowadays uh, because we live in a, a culture and uh, we, I think, easily adopt the attitudes of that culture uh, where uh, we are self-reliant. We are independent. We have a do-my-own-thing kind of mindset. And we live in, we can live in a self-focused, self-exalting, what's in it for me kind of way. That is sort of the world we live in. 
And it's easy for us living in that world to uh, adopt those things. And it's easy for our sinful hearts to hold on to those things and and, uh, live out those things. A self-reliant, independent, do-my-own-thing kind of way. A self-focused, self-exalting, what's-in-it-for-me kind of mindset. And those attitudes have no room in what Paul describes here and what Paul lays out for the life of the body of Christ, for the life of the church. Because instead of independent isolation, God's design is mutually dependent unity. And instead of self-serving, self-exaltation, God's design is others-focused humility. And we see, we're going to see how that works out in this passage uh, in the way that Paul lays out that the the Holy Spirit uh, gives gifts to the church. And we're just going to, real quick, I just want to sort of summarize four things that the Holy Spirit does in the, the life of a Christian. Let me get, plug a book. I don't do this often, but if you want to learn more about this topic, this book, Baptism and Fullness, I have two copies here that are uh, going to go on the book table when we have a book table again. But I'm going to, if you want to read more on this topic, I will give you that book uh, after church today. Uh, but let me just talk about quickly four things uh, that, that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a Christian. First, uh, baptism in the Spirit. And we read, this is relevant to our passage, we read it in verse 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. And so it's important to note that Paul, talking about this baptism of the Spirit, describes it for the Christian as past tense and universal. That is something that happened in the past if you're a Christian, and it's something that happens to all Christians. We were all baptized by one spirit and given one spirit to drink. This is a universal Christian experience because it's an initial Christian experience. It is what brings us into union with Christ. It is uh, the, the, the baptism of the Spirit is our regeneration, our being made new, made spiritually alive, born again, our washing, our, our uh, being united to Christ through His blood. And so this baptism in the Spirit then is not something that just some Christians experience, but something that all Christians experience, an objective reality for everyone in Christ, that which brought us into that union with Christ. And uh, that's why, you know, when, in verse 3, when we read, Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit, The point there is that everyone who genuinely confesses Christ is Lord does so because of the Spirit's work in their life. That is the basic profession of the Christian. Jesus is Lord. And when we genuinely say that, we are enabled and empowered to say that 
by the Spirit's presence in our life because the Spirit indwells all believers. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord, and the flip side of that is I belong to him. I'm his slave, and I will use my life to serve him. And all who can genuinely say that do it by the Spirit's enabling power and presence in their life. So all true Christians then are baptized by the Spirit of God. Second, we read in the New Testament of the filling of the Spirit. And this is a a command which God gives us that though the Spirit of God lives in all of us as believers, at the same time we are commanded to be filled by the Spirit, to depend on the Spirit's uh, empowerment to walk with God and to let God's Spirit rule in our hearts to walk by the spirit and live by the spirit through prayerful dependence and obedience third thing we read of in the new testament the fruit of the spirit this is the spirit's moment by moment lifelong work in us of sanctification to conform us to greater conformity to the life of jesus by growing and cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And finally, where we, uh, what we see in this chapter is the gifts of the Spirit. One definition of, uh, the gift of a gift of the Holy Spirit, the spiritual gifts, is, is this. Any God-given ability used to serve the body of Christ. Any God-given ability used to serve the body of Christ. And in this passage, we see some lists of spiritual gifts in verses 8 through 10 and then in verses 28 through 30. There are other such lists in the New Testament. And I don't believe any of these are meant to be exhaustive or fully comprehensive. They don't cover every single spiritual gift that exists. And uh, part of the reason I think that is some of the, the gifts are... Uh, not actually defined and so hard to know exactly what they mean. Uh, Likewise, I don't believe all of these gifts continue as gifts in the life of the church today. Uh, That's another topic for another time. Uh, But the point is not to to find in these some uh, a complete list or precise mold that we have to fit ourselves into but rather they simply paint the picture of the diversity with which God has gifted the, the people in his church, the parts of his body. And it is a wide diversity. And so we're going to consider then four things about these gifts of the Spirit that we learn in this chapter, what they are and uh, what they're for. First, most simply, these spiritual gifts are gifts they are gifts it's right there in the name they are gifts and that's important to remember they are gifts they uh, are freely given not earned not achieved and so rightly understood and lived out can never be the source of or result in attitudes of pride and boasting but only humility and gratitude. Paul purposely then counters those who view and live out their gifts in prideful, boasting, self-promoting, self-exalting, competitive or envious ways. 
by reminding his audience that these are spiritual gifts, not spiritual achievements. Gifts can never be the source of pride before God because he's the source of the gifts. He gives them. They can never be a sense of, they can never result in a sense of superiority uh, between one believer and another, as though we could credit ourselves for those gifts and the ability to use them. No, all the credit goes to God, who is the giver of those gifts, to the Spirit of God who gives them freely. So they are gifts. Second, these different gifts are given by the same source, and so they should not be a source of division, but a source of unity. Because they're given by the same Spirit. And we see this emphasized in verses 4 through 6. Different gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Different gifts, but the same source. And even as you go on through those next few verses, you see that those different gifts listed out are still attributed to the same spirit as the source of them. These gifts differ in the way they're apportioned out, but we ought not to let that difference in outward expression uh, lead us to think that they aren't of the same source. There's not many different spirits, uh, and there's not many different uh, bodies of Christ that are created as a result of the apportionment of those gifts. But there's one spirit who gives the many gifts and one body. And in fact, you, mentioned, you, you might notice in those verses 4 through 6, each member of the Trinity is mentioned there. And just as, you know, the, the, um, the Trinity is one, uh, but at the same time diverse, right? So the Trinity is unity and diversity. One God, unity, existing in three persons, diversity. And so in the same way, there is one spirit, unity that gives diverse gifts. There is one body in a unity composed of different and diverse parts. And so verse 25 sums this up, so that there should be no division in the body. And at the church in Corinth, these different gifts were actually leading then to the opposite uh, result that God intended in giving them because they weren't lived out with the proper humility. One quote, one writer said it this way, that the church is one because the one spirit indwells all believers. But at the same time, the church is diverse because the one spirit distributes different gifts to all believers. Third thing, these different gifts are given by the same spirit, but also for the same purpose. They not only have the same source, but they have the same purpose. Verse 7 states that purpose, that these gifts are given uh, to, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That last part of that phrase is the purpose for which this diversity of gifts is given, for the common good. The purpose of God gifting us 
is so that we can use those gifts not just for myself but for the common good of the body of Christ to build it up to meet needs within its midst to contribute to its mission and work to be a visible display of that spiritual unity that is ours by working towards that in a humble and cooperative way that seeks to meet needs around me and build up others around me. And so this, then, is uh, Paul's way of teaching this church that a right view of the purpose of these spiritual gifts excludes all envy and rivalry and competitiveness and superiority and self-serving, self-exalting practice of the gifts that it is for the common good not just for my good for building up not for tearing down for exalting others not myself and in fact Paul emphasizes the crucial um, importance not just of the particular gift one has but the manner with which that gift is lived out and used in the body of Christ right no one has every gift but whatever not not everyone has the most uh, prominent gift but whatever gift one has Paul reminds us that we need to exercise that gift in the fruit of the Spirit particularly the fruit of love and that's why at the end of our chapter, he says, I will show you the most excellent way. And he goes on to talk about the necessity of love. And that if we, we can, uh, you know, speak in tongues of men or angels, but if we don't have love, we're about as useful as a, as a, a banging on a gong or clanging on a cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, he says, I am nothing. He goes on to say that whatever gift we have, we need to exercise it in love. Love that is patient, love that is kind, love that doesn't envy, Love that doesn't boast. You can hear the resonance with the context of, of the church and, and what he's addressing in chapter 12, right? Love that doesn't envy. Love that doesn't boast. Love that isn't proud. Love that doesn't dishonor others. Love that is not self-seeking. Love that is not easily angered. Love that keeps no record of wrongs. Love that does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Boy, if uh, every spiritual gift in the, the church was exercised in that manner, it would certainly result in a lot of common good and building up, wouldn't it? <clears throat> because we can only use our gifts for the common good and the building up of others if we use them in the love of Jesus. So fourth, last point we see here with these spiritual gifts is that the diversity of gifts is part of God's beautiful design to bind his people together in unity through mutual need, dependence, and service. To illustrate this, Paul uses the illustration of the church as a human body, 
this image of the, the human body to illustrate how God has designed his people, his church. The human body is one body, but it's made up of many different parts, many different organs, limbs, parts, and none of these parts uh, survive on their own, disconnected from the rest of the body. Each of them needs the other, right? And none of these individual parts can do everything on their own, but each still uh, needs, uh, has needs uh, to receive from another part. And each has a unique role to play in the life of that body. And so there is unity through diversity. Each one has something to give that other parts lack and need. And each part has something that it needs and receives from what others give. This binds each part of the body together in a crucial and necessary uh, mutual dependence. Each one has something to give, a particular purpose with which God has gifted that part to serve the good of the body. And each part has something that it needs. No part of the body can survive or thrive on its own. And this mutual need creates this mutual dependence that is met through mutual service. And so then Paul goes on to address, take, take on wrong attitudes that we can bring to this diversity of gifts in the body of Christ. Some who say in verse 15, I don't belong. And others who say in verse 21, I don't need you. He dresses these two wrong attitudes, verse 15, some who say, I don't belong. Maybe this person looks around at the gifts that others have or the contribution that others make. Maybe perhaps uh, looks at gifts that are more prominent or obvious or which uh, that we may be tempted to envy or look at my own gift and feel that it isn't as important. And be tempted in light of those things to say, well, because I don't have that gift, I don't belong here. And to that person, Paul says, no. You do belong. You are part of the body. And the very fact that you don't have that other person's gift is part of the design. And should not be taken to conclude that I don't belong, but rather should be the thing that prompts the awareness in us that we have our own different, unique gift and way to serve and contribution to make. That I am needed. I do belong. You have something to give that others lack and need to receive from you. You belong. You are needed. And within the body of Christ, every part is valuable and valued. Every part belongs. And so we shouldn't envy the gifts of others and count ourselves out, but fully play our part, whatever gift we've been given. First, I don't belong. I'm no good. You don't need me. The second attitude he confronts is, I don't need you. You're no good. I don't need you. 
And while the first counts myself out, the second attitude counts others out. It's the attitude of those who may be tempted to boast in the gifts they have or the contribution they make, to feel a proud superiority towards others over others because of a difference in giftedness and may uh, be tempted then to look at others and think that that person ought to just get their act together and have the, the gift that I have. Uh, or to think that the fact that they don't means they just aren't too important. They're kind of expendable. That they don't really fully belong. That they certainly need me, but I don't need them. I don't need you. And to that person, Paul says, no. You do. Don't count others out. They belong and they have something to give that you need. Because you aren't everything. We should not think that we are self-sufficient. But we, uh, in light of this reality of how God's put us and the church together, we should uh, recognize and appreciate and value and make room for and see not only our own but others' uh, contribution to the needs that exist within the body of Christ. And in fact, Paul goes on to say that it's the... um, the parts of the human body that aren't as presentable, you know, that aren't as prominent or visibly displayed that sometimes play a more significant role in the body's functioning. They just sometimes do it more behind the scenes, without which those parts that maybe have that more visible and prominent role would not do, could not do what they do, and so should be treated with special honor, he says. Because someone might have a particular gift, but Paul then asks all these questions. Do all people have that gift? Do all people have this gift? Do all people have that gift? Do all people... These are rhetorical questions he lists in verse uh, 28 through uh, 30. And the answer to each one is no. No. Not any one person has every gift... And not all people have the same gift. And to drive home the point of that, prior to that, of course, he he follows this envious attitude or this discounting attitude that he's rejected. He follows those through to their logical conclusion, uh, their logical and sort of humorous conclusion Imagine if we all had that one gift we envied in someone else or expected everyone else to have the gift that I have. Where would the body be then? In verse 17 and 18, he, asks these, uh, he follows this through to its logical and humorous conclusion. Imagine if a body was only an eye. Well, sight is good, right? And that body that's only an eye could uh, see very well, might have clear, good, extensive vision, but it would be severely lacking in many, many other ways, right? Uh, For one, it couldn't hear anything, he says. (laughs) Uh, You know, it might see everything with perfect 20-20 vision, but it would be totally unable to respond to anything it sees, to do anything in response to what it sees. It would be helpless uh, to, to, to do anything besides see. And he goes on to ask if the whole body were an ear. 
then it might have a great sense of hearing, but it would be severely lacking in many, many other ways. Hearing is great, but if it's only an ear, it can only hear. And it's left deprived of the sense of smell. It might hear everything, but be totally uh, oblivious to the nonverbal inputs around it. It would be totally unable to respond to all that it heard with such great precision and clarity. And so by not being an eye or an ear, a different part of the body is being, being and bringing something unique and necessary for the life and healthy functioning of that body. He says, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Each one is a different part and each one is only a part. Not everyone is the same part and no one is the whole in themselves. And so every part is needed. There's no unnecessary, unneeded, superfluous parts of the body of Christ. Everyone is needed. There may be parts that have purposes and contributions that are less prominent, more behind the scenes, but that doesn't follow then that there are parts of the body of Christ that don't belong and that don't have something to contribute. There may be parts of the body of Christ that serve a more prominent visible role, but that doesn't mean those parts are uh, exempt from and don't need the ministry and service of the rest of the body of Christ the body of Christ, in order to thrive and uh, in, in the way that God desires, needs the contribution of every part. <clears throat> each one has something to give and so belongs. And each one has something it needs and so is dependent on the rest. In fact, Paul describes such strong mutual dependence that in verse 25 and 26, each part should have equal concern for the other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That's how bound up in a unity the one body of Christ is. Just like, you know, if you have a uh, little paper cut on your pinky finger, your whole body can be very aware of that, Right? And when the body is sick and injured, it doesn't say, oh, well, that's the, uh, you know, if you've got a stuffy nose, the body doesn't, oh, that's just the nose's problem, right? It's, it's uh, if you've got a broken leg, the body, oh, that's just the leg's problem. The whole body is affected and concerned and uh, impacted because it's one body, and on the other hand, he says, if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Re I, re I read this example of, of that. If a, if a runner wins a race, you don't just congratulate the legs or the lungs. <laughs> you congratulate the whole person. The whole person rejoices in that victory. That is the, the, the mutual uh, connection that we experience and are called to live out in the body of Christ. That as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, in, that in love, we rejoice when others rejoice. And we mourn with those who mourn. And we live in harmony with one another. That's the depth of the reality of how we are in fact bound together 
in Christ. And that's a call to us to live out that reality by being connected to one another in our needs and in, in our meeting of those needs and in our uh, depending and relying upon one another for strength and encouragement in the body of Christ. This reminds us that our service to the body of Christ isn't just in you know, formal ministry roles, but a big part of it is the interpersonal ministry which we give to one another in love and care as we live out our faith together. Let me, um, let me uh, suggest three quick applications to how we can do this. Um, <clears throat> first, show up to church on Sunday. That's in, the, in our membership class. We talk about that as sort of ground-level commitment for members. Uh, let me encourage you, show up for church on Sunday. That's for sort of the starting point of how we begin to live out this life of mutual service and interpersonal ministry in the body of Christ. Be committed to the local church, which is that local expression of the body of Christ. Uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> there is, uh, I heard this phrase recently that, there, <laughs> that stuck in my, my mind. There is uh, perfect church weather, right? <laughs> and uh, perfect church weather is, it seems to be getting rarer and rarer these days where the weather has to be just right, not too good, not too bad, where then, all right, church is good. I can go to church. Uh, and, you know, I'm not talking to persons or situations where there's legitimate uh, reasons to stay home, but to that attitude in which the stars have to perfectly align and the range of legitimate excuses gets broader and brighter, wider and wider, just to be here, just to show up. Let me... Uh, uh, let me encourage you to show up on Sunday, to get here a little early and greet a new face, to hang around a little late and uh, get to know somebody you don't know. Second, get connected. Uh, it takes time and effort and patience and perseverance to develop the kind of relationships that are necessary to make this, I, this picture of the body of Christ a reality. And we should be honest about that, right? And we should check our expectations. Sometimes we think that this is, you know, uh, this is just going to happen easily, quickly, without much effort, automatically. But it takes a lot of time and effort and patience and perseverance. And uh, showing up on Sunday, I said, is sort of the ground level uh, commitment, but often merely a Sunday morning connection isn't going to be enough. And so we encourage people then to get more deeply connected with other believers uh, in community groups. That's where you can find uh, way, way, people who uh, have needs that you could meet in love. That's where you can bring your own needs to be met by others in love. 
And that's where we can find that deeper connection that we need to live out this mutual dependence and service. And uh, third, serve. Um, the Christian life is a life of service because our Savior is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we follow him in that example. He washed the feet of his disciples as an act of humble service. And he calls us to do likewise. One, one of the questions we ask in our membership class, how can you serve this local expression of the body of Christ? Maybe it's through an involvement in a ministry team we, we just heard from. Uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, uh, responding to uh, the, the needs that we put out there. Uh, Sunday morning needs, needs for somebody to, uh, who, who's in a, uh, who needs the, the blessing of meals being brought to them. Uh, needs to uh, spruce up the building on Saturday, things like that. Maybe... One way you can serve is to commit to pray for this church. Maybe it's to be a friend to someone who's lonely. Maybe it's to uh, meet a a need to someone who's in need uh, or someone who's hurting. Some of these are less prominent, but they're not less necessary. It's not just that the church needs you. It's not just that you need the church, but it's both. The church needs you, and you need the church. The Christian life is not a spectator sport, and life in the body of Christ is not one merely of spectating and consuming, but participating and giving. How can you use your gifts to serve the body of Christ here at Redeemer? I heard this uh, this week, a quick Google search confirmed it was true, so take that for what it's worth, but uh, redwood trees are the tallest trees on the, the planet. They can grow uh, up to or more than 300 feet high, uh, yet their roots don't go very deep, 6 to 12 feet deep. How is it that they can stand Uh, with such shallow roots, it's because they live in groves where their roots intertwine. And a redwood on its own can't grow to be the tallest tree on earth. It needs the support and the connection to other trees around it. And isn't that true for us? And isn't that true of the church? Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for the the gift that is the body of Christ. Help us to value this gift. Help us to uh, benefit from uh, what is given through others in this, through their gifts, and help us to, uh, by the strength of your Spirit, to serve with our gifts, all for the good of your church, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.